What's up, everybody? We hope you guys are having a great day so far. Welcome back to another episode of the Scaredy Cats podcast. If y'all are new here, we are your hosts, Sway and Liz. And if you enjoy true crime, scary stories, and more, make sure to add us to your favorites and tune in every Wednesday at 3 p.m. for a brand new episode. And if you guys want to stay up with our ladies, don't forget to follow us at Scaredy Cats Podcast and that's Scaredy Cats with the K. But you guys, before we do start on today's episode, we do hope that you guys had a great Valentine's Day. We honestly had a really good one. It was really chill, laid back. We went out to dinner and like you. Usually it's pretty busy, but this Valentine's it wasn't that busy this year. Yeah, guys, I think it's because it's pre- been pretty chilly. Yeah, I you know. know so not not a lot of people wanted to come out, but not only that, I feel like when Valentine's Day lands on like a weekday, Every- people kind of like celebrate it the weekend before. Yeah, or so, even like the following weekend. Yeah. So like I don't know. I guess it's kind of like a good idea to go still on the weekday and stuff. Yeah. I remember last Valentine's, I, it was we packed. went. Yeah, we went to Elevation, right? Yeah, but I did make a reservation, so which was good. Yeah. Because we were able to get in, but there was still like a little bit of a wait. Guys, yeah, and let me just tell you a quick story about that. I ended up choking on a piece of salad, and you guys don't know how terrifying that was because it was literally like stuck, like blocking my airway. Like it was flat in there, and I was just kind of like, oh my god, like what am I gonna do? It honestly started to scare me. I was like, I'm like, you want me to go get somebody? <laughs> it got to the point where I, I kind of saw that she was turning pale. <laughs> And I'm like, okay, I, I was about to like get up to go get somebody, and she's like, it's okay, it's okay, I got it down. Yeah. And you ended up getting it down, but I, I, so I was about water. to like go get somebody because yeah. I'm like, no, she's about to like pass out. Yeah, it was it was intense, guys. And like honestly, ever since that day, I chew the crap out of my salad because I'm like, no, that's not gonna happen again. Today's story does have to do with an unsolved mystery. I gotta ask you, babe, and ask you guys, how do you guys feel about unsolved mysteries? Honest- it makes me mad sometimes. Yeah, I feel like just like any buddy it's frustrating because you know like the, that show on netflix the unsolved mysteries when i watch them like the ending is always so like i'm like dissatisfied because i'm like come on like there has to be at least one piece or one key thing that could have helped solve this but it's just like and i'm sure for the people who are on the case it's just as frustrating yeah and it kind of sucks because midway you kind of forget that it's an unsolved murder so when at the end they say it hasn't been solved i'm like dang what it. the heck yeah like I, I don't know i hate watching those but i also like to watch them because i'm like maybe i can find something or maybe Maybe like you know there's a little thing but you know i don't know if you've heard of those guys that they actually um go underwater they're like scuba divers yeah and they they help solve unsolved mysteries and like they'll sometimes like find cars at the bottom of like the lake stuff and that's just kind of like it makes me think on these cases do you think that they're not trying hard enough or they don't have enough resources to find it you know because nowadays like um with those scuba divers they've actually been able to solve a lot of unsolved mysteries like murders that took place like a long time yeah it's it's insane so if you guys have haven't seen them i can't quite remember their name but definitely look it up and they're pretty interesting to watch yeah guys but without further ado we are going to jump into today's story which was highly requested from one of you guys and this story gives me chills every time i hear it it's about the axe murder house one of the most shocking unsolved murders till this day so before we jump into the story we do have to warn you guys some stuff that we're going to be talking about does contain graphic details about the case so if you're sensitive to that kind of stuff you're welcome to check out all of our other episodes but today's story does take place in the early 1900s in Villisca, Iowa and during this time the town had about the population of 2,000 to 3,000 people. It was said to be a beautiful small town with safe neighborhoods, lots of local businesses and all around just a great place to live at. In 1912 the town's only armory was built and it housed people that were in World War One and World War Two, along with some soldiers that were in the Korean and Vietnamese war. And I mean everyone in the town was proud because Villisca was growing up with new businesses and homes but that's until one of the most horrific 
murders in the United States took place on June 10th and 1912. The family of six was Josiah Moore, who was a very wealthy businessman in Villisca. He had a wife named Sarah, and they both had four children named Herman, who was 11, and the oldest of all four. Then there was Catherine, who was 10, Boyd, who was 7, and Paul, who was 5. The Moore family moved to Villisca in 1903 and purchased their first home there. We're going to give you guys a quick description of the house and the layout because it'll be important as we further get into this story. So, the house was built in 1860, and I believe it was your usual town home. It was roughly 1,000 square feet and had three bedrooms and one bathroom. Now, the layout, it was said that right when you walk in the front door, you walked into the kitchen area. If you look to your right, there were two passageways and one which would lead to the living room and the living room was a door that would lead to the only room in the first floor and the other passageway would lead to the staircase and the bathroom. Once you took the stairs to the second floor, it would lead you right into the master bedrooms where the parents slept and right across from the master bedroom was the third room where all the children slept in. So, you know, that's the layout of the house. If you look at pictures of it, it's a very tiny house. Like, you know, kind of like how houses back in the day used to be, you know, how they were very tiny. Mm -hmm. So this house, like, it seemed like everything was smushed together. It looked crazy. It, it was a beautiful house, but it looked crazy. And it was said that the Moore family was settling in just fine. The kids loved the house. They were making friends with most of the neighbors and Josiah's business was just booming. But on June 9th, 1912, it was a fresh Sunday afternoon and the Moore family was getting ready to attend the Children's Day service at their church. Sarah, the wife, was one of the directors of Children's Day and it typically is an end of the year event that they would do at their church and the Moore children would perform songs with all the other members of Sunday school. The event finished at around 9.30 p.m. and everyone began to head home, but the Moore family did not go alone and I just try to make that sound like spooky but the Moore family's daughters were good friends with the neighbor's daughters so they wanted to come over and you know spend the night at the Moore's house so the neighbors ended up saying yes and the Moore family and the two friends began to head home. Once they got home they all spent some time together and they went to bed shortly after but the next morning on June 10th at roughly 7 30 a.m. a neighbor who was very close to the Moore family grew worried because typically around that time the Moore family would be very noisy. She said Josiah would always be up early working on his farm and feeding the animals and it was basically a routine they had so it was very suspicious to her because this morning there was nothing and this neighbor that we were talking about isn't the parent of the two little girls but she ends up walking over to the house and knocks on the door but there was no answer and there wasn't any kind of movement so she ends up walking to the back of the house and notices that the animals are still locked in so she lets them out and feeds them she then decides to go knock one more time but once again she got no response she found this odd so she called Josiah's brother whose name was Ross and told him what was going on and he found it very suspicious as well so he showed up about 30 minutes later at 8 30 a.m to his brother's house yeah once he got there the neighbor who called them came out and they decided to look for a spare key so they can get inside the home ross ends up finding the spare key and opens the front door and as stated by him it was very quiet in the house and there was a strong rust smell so he walks into the living room and opens the door of the bedroom that was in the living room and sees two figures underneath the sheets and it looks like they were sleeping but as he got closer he begins to see blood on the frame of the bed and he runs out scared and tells the neighbor what he saw ross ends up calling one of josiah's employees named Ed and he tells him something awful just happened at the house. Could you know, could you come over and check it out? Ed gets there in about like a few minutes and Ross asks him if he could go inside and investigate what's going on because he can't go in there. And, you know, keep in mind guys, Ross was in shock right now, but Ed enters the home and comes out screaming a few minutes later and he told Ross that there were people killed in every single room. He also informed him that he found what he believes was a murder weapon and it was an axe that was left leaning against the wall in the first floor bedroom where the two neighbors died were found. He said 
It was somewhat clean, but had blood stains on it. They all ended up calling the sheriff, and later a physician by the name of Dr. Cooper was one of the first doctors to show up to the scene. They began to investigate, and he stated that it was the most brutal killings he had ever seen. Dr. Cooper walked into the first floor bedroom and lifted the sheets to report who it was, but he said that the faces were unrecognizable. This might be a bit much, but he stated that there were remains of brains all over the pillow and that their faces were in pieces. The police then began to look for fingerprints on other places of the home and on the axe, but the weird thing is that next to the bloody axe, there was a thick pack of bacon that was wrapped up in a cloth. Along with this, another creepy detail is that all the mirrors in the house and windows that had no curtains were covered up with clothes from the Moore's family dressers. Like, every single mirror in this house was covered, which is very weird. Isn't that weird? Yeah, like, but, like, the pack of bacon? Yeah, and, and, like, I'm just gonna say this right now. The pack of bacon, they never ended up finding why it was there. They never did. Like, I read up and down this whole case. They never ended up finding out why the pack of bacon was there, but it was literally, like, left right next to the axe wrapped up in, like, a cloth, which is just weird, but it yeah. said it was just, like, the thick meat of the part where they slice it to make bacon. It was just, it was just a big, thick piece of meat. It wasn't, like, chopped up into slices yet. That is so weird. It's weird, right? Yeah. So I was thinking, since they never found out why it was there, maybe it was, like, the signature mark of this person? Maybe he just leaves bacon next to the axe <laughs> i don't know i don't know that's it, pretty I that's pretty weird. yeah that's pretty weird because like uh, i was gonna be like maybe they were about to cook like you know breakfast but still if it's like up in a slab you know that yeah. doesn't make sense and it was in the room of the two little like neighbor's daughters oh like, yeah right i guess it wouldn't like it just makes sense right yeah. but the police also found on the kitchen table a plate of food that was untouched and a bowl of bloody water there was also huge indents on the roof of the rooms which was believed to be caused by the axe when you pull it up to swing it another creepy detail was that in both the parents room and the room downstairs there were two similar lamps placed at the foot of the bed and i don't know what it could mean it could possibly be you know like i said the killer's mark or something but i just found that to be very odd police did state that most of the victims were found with no clothing but that in the parents room on josiah's side of the bed the shoe of his wife sarah was found but this is unusual because it was on josiah's side of the bed why wouldn't it be on you know Sarah. sarah's side of the bed and it said that the shoe had blood inside of it and blood at the bottom of it almost as if somebody you know like saying if sarah committed this i'm not like blaming her but you know like blood went inside the shoe and she was stepping around where there was blood at so that's basically what they were indicating towards that you know maybe thinking that it was her but you know later that theory was ruled out but yeah they just found it very odd that there was blood inside the shoe and at the bottom and that it was on josiah's side of the bed but another thing is that the police found very odd that all doors were locked and the only way to lock them was through the inside of the home and all the windows investigated had no residue or marks basically they didn't find that any like windows were like forcibly entered i did read an article that it was believed that some of the windows didn't even open you know how back in the days they kind of didn't build windows to open so yeah they, it was believe that some of the windows didn't even open you know so the police were still trying to figure out how the killer entered and exited the house the police also confirmed that none of the bodies were sexually abused and then proceeded to make a list of suspects beginning with suspect number one was a man named reverend kelly the morning of the murder at 5 30 in the morning he leaves Velisca on train and as stated by some of the passengers he was acting very odd and told other travelers on board that there were eight souls brutally killed in their beds while they slept back in Velisca. keep in mind that at this time the bodies weren't even found yet and nobody knew about it till later that morning. That Sunday was Mr. Kelly's first day back in Velisca and he also attended the children's service at the church then later that night leaves on train. The interesting thing about him is that the two weeks after the murders took place he came back to Velisca 
posing as a detective and joined a group of investigators to tour the ex-murder house. The whole time he was investigating, nobody knew that he wasn't even a detective and they basically just kind of believed him. Which makes you like think of like how like, you know, secure this was, right? Probably with the whole like being so hectic, they probably just like, okay, you know, help us with this. They probably didn't like think that this dude True. was faking it. Yeah. But one police officer was informed by a neighbor that Mr. Kelly had a very odd past. She recalls seeing in the newspaper an ad from Reverend Kelly who was searching for a secretary to work with him, preferably a female, but not just any female. He wanted one that would feel comfortable working nude, which this dude was just sick. But I found it to be an interesting fact because if you remember, some of the victim's bodies were found nude. So they thought that that was, you know, some sort of connection. But the police began to look at what, you know, he was doing for a living. And he was actually a preacher now who was assigned to small local churches around the town of Villisca. And that's why he was attending the Sunday school service where the children were doing the event. But people in the town described him to be a man with odd behaviors because at night when everybody, you know, was supposed to be in their homes getting ready to sleep, he would walk around the neighborhood. And there was even rumors that he would peek through windows in hopes of seeing women showering or changing clothes. And, you know, as they further investigated Kelly, they found his medical records showing that he was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and spent some time in a mental hospital. And with all this information, police had no doubt that he was the killer. So throughout the summer of 1917, while he was in jail awaiting trial, he was being interrogated. The interesting thing, though, was that he was only being trialed for one of the murders, and that was the murder of one of the neighbor's daughters. Which, which is, is weird, right? Yeah, because you think that, like, I mean, all of them, you know, got murdered in the house, so why would it just be one? But on August 31st, at roughly 7 in the morning, Kelly signed a confession, and in that confession, he said that God spoke to him, and he said in quotes, suffer the children to come unto me, and continued to state that he was the one who murdered the whole family and the two other daughters. But during trial, he took back his confession, and his case was left to the jury on September 26th. Kelly would later be acquitted in November by two juries because they said that the case lacked evidence, so at the end of it, Kelly was let go. Personally, I don't know, I feel like his odd behaviors, you know, like all this stuff kind of just connected to him that I don't think I'd necessarily just let him off the hook like that. People were also saying that since he had like, you know, paranoid schizophrenia, he probably was just like saying this just oh, to get yeah. attention. Like thinking. Yeah, just yeah. thinking like he did Imagine all this because he was basically people were saying that he was crazy yeah. and he was a weirdo. People were just saying he probably did it to get attention and, be, you know, be like feared because people just kind of like were weird about him. Like they just didn't want him around. Yeah. But this leaves us with suspect number two, who was a man that went by the name of Frank Jones, and he was a Villisca resident, but an Iowa state senator. Frank Jones had a store called Jones Store, whom Josiah worked for in the past, and he was one of Frank's best employees for several years. The reason they suspected Frank was because people thought that Frank grew envious that Josiah had quit and was starting his own business because just a few stores down was where Josiah opened up his own store, where he was basically selling the same things that Frank was. Allegedly, when people came into Frank store he would make comments about Josiah and how he felt betrayed by his own worker but unfortunately Frank was never arrested and when he was spoken to by the police he denied that he had any involvement with the crime and now that brings us to our third suspect who was a man people believe was paid by Frank to commit the murders and his name was William Mansfield and he was labeled as a serial killer detectives found out that William was a cocaine abuser and that all the murders that William had committed had the same characteristic to the Villisca murders detectives got information detailing that the crime scenes he was responsible for and on paper it stated that each of the killings William did, he used an axe to murder his victims, and that all the mirrors and windows were covered 
covered with a piece of clothing which is you know the same thing but so the police were convinced that this was their guy so they began to investigate where he was the night of the murder and after the murders the police ended up getting information from a restaurant owner who was across the train station saying that he had seen william board the train early that morning he detailed how the man looked and it perfectly described william but after that piece of information they didn't really have anything else they later had one suspect who was suspect number four and his name was henry moore who had no connection to the family but he had also been arrested for a murder a few years back for killing his grandmother with an axe detectives also found that he covered all the mirrors and windows with clothing but he was never arrested so unfortunately the murder was never solved and to this day remains one of the most gruesome unsolved murders in the united states of america and this house is still up it's actually a historic building and you can actually tour the house for just a few dollars and i believe it is said that you know there's a lot of paranormal stuff that happens inside the house and that you can feel almost a dark heavy presence inside of it i don't know if i'd like to tour something like that that would be yeah. really weird to me um, i think it's weird that they have it for you yeah. to tour like like there was like gruesome murders caused in this house like why do you have it up as like, like a that. like a like a historic thing like that's yeah gruesome. like personally i think it's it's weird but like i guess it's kind of like if you go to the conjuring house to tour it but i guess that's like with paranormal stuff yeah. so i don't know i don't know that's it's a little bit weird i think it'd be too much for me to go in and be Same. like i want to go check this out you know going back to the guy who was a serial killer uh the william dude he actually was in fact like a serial killer back then like he killed a bunch of people and the police ended up catching him and he ended up suing like a detective and got like two thousand dollars back and was able to get out of jail for free he was basically out and people were thinking like this is the dude that did it because he's like a freaking serial killer like he was murdering people and he lived in Villisca. nothing, no, nothing. he yeah. wasn't arrested i just find it crazy though with a lot of these like murders and stuff like they have all these suspects but they rule them out in the end you know and it and what would be so like heart-wrenching to think is that one of those suspects that you ruled out was probably the one the reason the judge kept like declining that these were the people was because he thought that the detectives were so eager to close the case that they were just looking for anybody that had similar connections to the case but i'm like no like they literally do the same thing like they cover the mirrors they use an axe you could have looked into both of these last two guys even just a little bit further yeah. yeah because even the last guy that murdered his grandmother he was in jail for like a few years and got out and he was out of jail when the murders happened at Villisca. so i feel like they should have just dug deeper between the two but they just basically didn't because the judge thought that they were eager to close the case what do you guys think who do you think could have possibly done it is there any information that you guys know that like you're like okay no. this is a theory that i'm going with yeah and to my knowledge it's still unsolved i don't know if there's information out there mm -hmm. saying that they solved it but yeah to my knowledge it's still unsolved to this day yeah guys what a frustrating case just like any other unsolved murder but either way thank you guys for joining us today on this spooky episode and don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms at the scaredy cats podcast and that scaredy cats with the k yeah and if you enjoyed today's episode go ahead and leave us a review letting us know what you loved about it we would really appreciate it but without further ado, we are out. Peace. Peace.